0: Uh, I'm privileged to, to bring a lesson to you in Colin's absence. Uh, this time of the year, when everybody's on vacation, I remember when I was a teenager, which was like, you know, 500 years ago, I would go down to spend a couple of weeks with my cousins down, they lived down on Galveston Bay, a little town called Kima. And one Sunday afternoon, we were down there, uh, we were headed, we had the surfboards on top of the car, we were headed to the beach, going to go down to... Uh, Galveston and surf as you could there. And when we got to the end of the road where you went to the highway that turned left to go to the beach, we heard a siren from the little volunteer fire department in Kima. And they were volunteer firemen. So instead of turning left, we turned right. We went to the fire department just in time to get on the back of this truck And and I'm telling you, I was holding on for dear life. I know it wasn't going 100 miles an hour, but when you're holding on to the back of a fire truck that's racing down the highway, it seems like that. We we pull up, in just minutes, we pull up to this fire. It's not some big uh, elaborate thing like I'm thinking. It's a grass fire in a vacant lot, but it's a huge vacant lot. And this fire has gotten a head start on us. And. They, instead of getting the big fire hoses out, they give us these big brown burlap sacks that have been soaked in water, and we go by hand and start beating the flames down to put out this grass fire. And it... I don't know. It probably took an hour or two. It seemed like it took hours. It seemed like all afternoon we were beating that thing down. It was windy and it didn't matter which direction you tried to get. The smoke was blowing in your eyes and I was swallowing it. And by the time that was over, I had swallowed enough smoke and beat out enough flames to know I didn't want to ever have anything to do with fighting fires again. And I am so thankful for firefighters who brave the flames. In times where they're in great peril, Uh, on another July, a windy July afternoon, more recently, there was a, a fire, a wildfire that started on Smoke Mountain in Colorado. And they had some smoke jumpers, that's the elite squad of firefighters that parachute in to remote areas as the first line of defense against these wildfires. They had these smoke jumpers parachute into the ridge at the top of Smoke Mountain. Well, no sooner than they had landed, than the wind changed, and it's incredible gusts of wind started blowing, blew the fire, which it just expands it intensely. It went uphill up toward the top of that mountain. Fire is the one thing in nature that goes faster uphill than down. I know it's weird, but it just, it just, it just took off like crazy and engulfed these firefighters. There was virtually no chance that they had. They got their little shiny foil uh, survival shelters out and, and pulled them over them and hugged the ground. But the heat and the flames were so intense, they didn't have a chance. Fourteen firefighters died on that ridge that day. We, we remember the scenes from when the World Trade Center on a 9-11, when the World Trade Center was was destroyed. And the flames coming out of there, everybody was pouring out of the bottom of those buildings, except the firefighters who were going in and going up with no thought for their own safety to rescue people and save them. People that face flames are people of incredible courage. And they have something bigger than themselves that they're about. I don't know what I would do if I were in one of those kinds of situations. I hope I would do like some of those brave people did. I don't know. But we're going to look at a story from Scripture, from Daniel chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up and turn to Daniel 3 this morning. We're going to look at a story about some people that faced some flames, and they were in peril for their own lives. It wasn't uh, a natural fire. It was something else. And they had amazing courage that they demonstrated. The year is 600 BC. We're in the third of our series of believers in Babylon, where we're talking about what happened to Daniel and his friends. 600 BC. The the, the place is what is now modern-day Iraq. And the king on the throne was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was an amazing guy. He was, for ancient our ancient people, he was an incredible, brilliant empire builder. And one of the things that made him such a good empire builder is that instead of just destroying a place that he would conquer, a country or a city, he would tell his generals, when you claim the victory in the battle, then I want you to go not only bring back the the riches, the treasures, the valuables from the country, I want you to bring back the best people that they have. The, the, the brightest, the smartest, the most educated, the, the most courageous warriors, the best athletes, the most capable leaders, all of the best of the best, you bring them back here. And when they got back to Babylon, he would he would enter them into a a reconditioning program, if you will, a deculture and reculture type of situation. Where they would gradually, slowly, bit by bit, over a series of several years, they would have the culture that they had brought with them slowly removed and replaced with Babylonian culture. The things they believed, the practices they engaged in, the values they held would fade away and be replaced with the new ones. Well, there were guys from Jerusalem were among the people that were brought back. Daniel, who wrote this book, as well as his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as we more commonly refer to them by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And God provides an incredible gift for them. They just kind of keep rising to the top. We saw in the first lesson that they were challenged, and they overcame that. But they didn't quit. I mean, the the challenges don't stop. They keep coming in wave after wave. This isn't a once-and-done challenge to their convictions. Daniel and his friends realize what's going on. They understand that this training program is really an effort to deconstruct all that they held dear and replace it with something else. Let me pause here to make an observation about this story. This is an incredibly relevant story for us today because it is a clear example of the kind of culture conflict that's going on right here where we live right now in our lifetimes. In case you haven't noticed, our world, our society that we're in right here is not supportive of godly lifestyles and Christian cultures. There is an incredible pressure to cave in and give those up. And it doesn't happen instantly. Usually, like it did with them, it happens gradually, bit by bit over time. So you don't notice it. It doesn't seem like such a big deal at the time. Because we have an enemy who's just as shrewd and just as capable in empire building as Nebuchadnezzar ever thought about being. And he uses the same kind of approach. He uses the same tactics. Now, usually, we don't set out to wind up where we wind up. We just don't notice it because it's happening so slowly. We just want to be reasonable and understanding with people that see things differently from us. Most of the time, it happens slowly. But occasionally, we come to a major confrontation. And that's what's going to happen here in Daniel chapter 3. When that happens, we have to decide if we're going to stand our ground or we're going to cave in. Now, Daniel's not mentioned in this story. I don't know where he was. Maybe he was off on some important diplomatic mission for Nebuchadnezzar or something. We we don't know. But the other three guys are here. And here's what happens in chapter 3 to set up the confrontation. King Nebuchadnezzar erects this giant golden statue, 90 feet tall, twice as tall as this, this building here huge golden statue out in the plain, and he decrees that everybody is going to have to bow down to that statue when the music plays, or else, they'll, essentially, they'll be cremated alive. Pretty serious consequences. Now, I don't know exactly what it looked like. I I have a vision or a picture in my mind of a scene from the Hunger Games movies. You remember those? Where everybody gathers together and there's this big assembly and all the VIPs are there. And there's some really serious things about to happen. Some people are going to lose their lives. Well, that's what's going on here in Daniel chapter 3. This huge statue is out there. All of the celebrities are there. Good morning, Babylon is interviewing all of these important people. Everybody is waiting. And then when the conductor steps up to the the bandstand, I mean, he taps his baton on the music stand, and everybody gets silent because they know what's happening next. They know when the music starts, they bow or they burn. The music starts, and all you hear is this horrendous thud of thousands of knees hitting the turf. A cloud of dust rises up, and when the wind finally kind of blows it away, you see every single person bowing before this, this image, except for three solitary figures out on the plane, our guys. I don't know what they were doing. Maybe they had their arms crossed in defiance of the king's order. Maybe they had their arms raised up to heaven along with their faces because they were worshiping the God of heaven, not some God some person made. Whatever they were doing, it got noticed. You know, one of the things you can count on is that when you take a stand for God, your stand will be noticed. Because it's going to stand out in the world we live in today. Look at verse 8. Some Babylonians used this as a chance to accuse the Jews to Nebuchadnezzar. They said, Your Majesty, we hope you live forever. You commanded everyone to bow down and worship the gold statue when the music played. And you said that anyone who did not bow down and worship it would be thrown into a flaming furnace. Sir, you appointed three men to high positions in Babylon province, but they have disobeyed you. Those Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refuse to worship your gods and the statue that you have set up. You see, anytime somebody who is a follower of God, faithful to God, takes a stand that doesn't go along with what everybody else is doing, you can bet some people are going to notice and they're going to be happy to do anything they can to help bring about the demise of that person still happens today when people who serve God experience good things in their lives you can be sure there's going to be some people around happy to do anything they can to help make their demise come about of course (laughs) today it's probably not very likely that your boss is going to erect a 90 foot golden statue and tell you to bow down to it that's not exactly the way it's going to work it's going to be different but it's still going to be the same We're faced every day with the temptation to bow down to the gods of our generation. We experience pressure to bow to the idols of career and of financial security and of comfort and image and all kinds of other things that so many people worship that it seems totally crazy not to fall in line and do the same thing like everybody else does. And if you don't, if you get out of step with that, people look at you like you're something weird, some alien or something. Folks, when a person stands for God, their stand is always noticed. Three years after the, the challenge of chapter one. They have already completed this training program. They've received their assignments in these high position in Babylon province and the challenges still come. And they stood firm. And so must we. Peter puts it this way, but you are God's chosen and special people. You are a group of royal priests and a holy nation. <clears throat> God has brought you out of darkness into his marvelous life. Just like then, when we take a stand for God today, instead of going along with everything else that people are doing, people are going to notice. Late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia once was speaking to a group, and he said this, God assumed from the beginning that the wise of the world would view Christians as fools, and he has not been disappointed. If I have brought any message today, it is this. Have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ and have the courage to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. Folks, it doesn't matter if we're a nobody or if we're a Supreme Court justice or anywhere in between. When we decide we're going to do what God calls us to do, we're going to hold those values and follow that kind of lifestyle instead of what the world is telling us to, people are going to think we're stupid or crazy or something worse. And they're going to accuse us of all kinds of inappropriate motives. They're going to say, oh, you're just self-righteous. Oh, you just are inflexible. Oh, you just are whatever else. What other politically incorrect thing they can come up with? question is, are we going to stand our ground? Don't ever let the fear of what people will think of you stop you from standing for God. Because they will notice and they will not like it. But not only when we take a stand will people notice. When we take a stand, our commitment to God is going to be challenged. I promise you that. That's exactly what happens here. Look at verse 13. King Nebuchadnezzar was furious. So he sent for the three young men and said, I hear that you refuse to worship my gods and the gold statue I've set up. I'm going to give you one more chance. If you bow down and worship the statue when you hear the music, everything will be all right. But if you don't, you will at once be thrown into a flaming furnace. No God can save you from me. (laughs) He was furious. One version translates it, in a fit of rage and anger, he said this stuff. He couldn't believe anybody would dare stand up to him like that. Maybe he thought they just didn't understand. He was going to give another chance. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have come up with all kinds of reasons or rationalizations or justification for not standing up. They could have said, well, you know, we really do have a pretty good position in the government. We can, we can make a big difference. We can do a lot of good here. We can do a lot of good for our own countrymen that have been brought into captivity. We can, there's no telling what we could do. Or they could have said, well, you know, we're not in Judah anymore, are we? This isn't Israel. I mean, we're in their country. This is their culture. We need to be respectful of the way they do things. We need to go on and on and on about why it was okay. Or they could have just said, well, so here's what we'll do. We'll bow down. We'll get on our knees. But in our hearts, we're not going to worship that thing. In our hearts, we're still going to worship God. Any of those things sound familiar? We use that kind of rationalization and justification all the time. for not standing strong, standing tall for God. Now, the truth is, real commitment never looks for loopholes just doesn't. Real commitment stands for God even when it's challenged. So how do you do that? Well, you start by the way they did. They didn't have to have a holy huddle and figure out what they were going to do. They didn't have to take a boat on it. They knew exactly what they were going to do. It wasn't up for discussion. They had already decided in advance how they were going to respond. So when the time came, they knew where they were if we want to stand instead of cave in when the pressure gets hot, then we need to decide in advance what we're going to do. Teens, you want to make a commitment to purity and make sure you will save yourself for the mate that you want to spend the rest of your life with? Then you don't wait until you get in the back of a car or somewhere else and everything gets hot and heavy to decide how you're going to respond. You decide in advance what you're going to do. Folks, you go to a party, and there's way too much booze going around, along with a lot of other stuff and a lot of other things happening that you got no business being around. You don't wait until you get there, and then decide how you're going to respond. Not if you want to make a God-honoring decision. Guys, you go on a business trip, and after dinner, the guys, your working buddies, want you to go to the club with them. You don't wait until that moment to decide whether you're going to go there or not. Not if what you do, not if you want it to be something that God is proud of. We don't wait until then. We decide in advance what we're going to do and how we're going to respond so that we're ready when it comes. That's what they did. Look at verse 16. The three men replied, your majesty, we don't need to defend ourselves. The God we worship can save us from you and your flaming furnace. And here's the real kicker. But even if he doesn't, we still won't worship your gods and the gold statue you set up. That's some spot, isn't it? That's some courage. What amazing words. They had an unshakable trust in God's ability to deliver them. Now notice, they did not say, God will deliver us. They said, God can. Because they didn't know what he was going to do. But even if he didn't, it didn't make any difference. They weren't going to cave in. They were going to stand strong. Now that's a very different attitude than a lot of people have today. Have you noticed that? There appear to be a lot of folks in our culture, good people, believing people, Christian people devoted to God, who have gotten this idea that if somebody just has enough confidence in what they want to happen, it'll happen I mean, we run into that everywhere. If you, you want to win the game, you just got to have the confidence you do. You want to get that relationship going, you got to have confidence in that. You want to you succeed in your career, you need to have confidence in that. And if you just have confidence in it, everything's going to be okay because God's going to bless that. Problem. God doesn't teach us that. God doesn't promise us that. Just like he didn't promise these guys that. Unfortunately, the idea that we can make good things happen by simply having enough faith gets so much airtime in our culture, people get sucked into that. The idea that God will give us whatever we ask for as long as we just believe. Sometimes they're even taught that in church. Folks, if there were some of those people back, sitting and watching Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I promise you they would say, hey, wait a minute, time out. Don't say that. Don't say even if he doesn't. That's that's negative thinking. That's That's not faith. You need to believe. Well, that's not what they did. Folks, faith that God calls us to have is not exceptional confidence in a particular desired result. Faith is what they had to trust in God even if he didn't rescue them. Faith is trusting that God knows what we don't know. That he sees what we don't see. And that he has a plan that's better than any strategy we could come up with. And when we don't understand that, the results can be devastating one young mother had a had a vehicle full of kids and it was winter time and it was raining and it was messy and she had to get them home but she there was a couple of things she needed from the store and she just she had to get them and she did she she got to thinking about what that meant it meant she was going to have to go to the store Get them all out of their car seats and out of their seat belts and get their coats on and get them in, into the store and get them in the cart and go get a couple of things and then come back and do all of that in reverse. You been there, ladies? You know what that is. And she was thinking, I don't, that's just crazy to have to do all of that stuff. It's going to take 20 or 30 minutes instead of two or three. And then she had this brilliant idea. She said, I know, I will pray that God gives me a parking place right in front of the store, and I can leave the kids in here all strapped in with the car running, and I'll leave it locked up, and I'll I'll always be able to see them. They'll never leave my sight. I can zip in, get those two things, zip back out, and in three minutes, it'll all be done, and we can go. And she started praying with all of the faith that she could muster that God would give her a parking place. And guess what happens? She pulls in to the parking lot, and there is no parking place anywhere close to the front door. Now, you you may smile at how naive this young mother was, but let me tell you, when she was relating this story to her friends, there were pools of tears in her eyes. And she said, I don't know what's wrong. I prayed with all the faith I could muster, and God didn't answer the prayer there's got to be something wrong with my faith. You see, in her worldview, there was either something wrong with her faith or something wrong with God. And she knew there wasn't anything inadequate about God. So it had to be a problem with her faith. But she didn't have a problem with her faith. She had a problem with where she put it. She put it in the fact that he asked God for something and he had to give it to her. Folks, God is not a cosmic vending machine that we just put enough prayers in with enough faith and we're sure to get out what we ask for. That's not how he works. He's bigger than that. And the trouble is other people have experiences and they decide the other thing than that lady did. It's not my faith that's a problem, it's God. A guy by the name of a Christian counselor and author by name Jim Conway really struggled with trusting in God when his daughter was diagnosed with cancer. Doctors told him that she was going to have to have her leg amputated in order to survive, in order to save her life. And they were, they were devastated by that. And they asked all of their friends and their family, all of their loved ones to join them in praying that God would heal that young lady, that he would, he would by his power, grant her healing The the surgery was scheduled, but the day that she went into the hospital, Jim demanded, he insisted that the surgeon have another test run before he did the surgery, confident that God was going to answer the prayer and the results would come back, that the cancer was completely gone. Let me read to you what he said. He said, a crowd of friends from the church had come to wait with us. So many came, in fact, they made us leave the waiting room. When the surgeon came out, I knew from the look on his face what he was going to say and I couldn't face it. I couldn't face all those people so I ran. I ran to the hospital basement where no one would find me and I cried, I yelled, I pounded my fist against the wall. I felt like the God whom I had served had abandoned me at the hour of my deepest need. Was he so busy answering prayers for parking spaces that he couldn't answer the prayers for Becky's healing? He didn't decide his Faith was the problem. He decided God was the problem. And that's what happens when we look at it that way. How many people have been through incredibly different, difficult experiences in their lives, and the result has been it's, it's undermined their faith? I don't know how many people I have known who were once people of tremendous faith that because of some devastating tragedy that occurred, they decided God wasn't who he claimed to be, and they abandoned their faith. Folks, it's essential that we know how to respond when the answer that God gives to our prayers is no. How will you respond if God doesn't say yes to your prayers? how will you respond if God doesn't deliver you from the sickness you have, from the broken marriage that you're in, or from the situation where you're alienated from one of your children, or where that financial disaster that's looming on the horizon crashes down on you, or whatever else it is that you're facing? How will you respond to that? The experience devastated Jim Conway but it also drove him back to scripture and there he discovered that the problem with a faith that blindly is, insists on what we would love to happen is not a biblical faith no matter how right and precious our prayer we're praying for something that doesn't mean that if god doesn't say yes he doesn't love us and he isn't powerful. We can't let that desire that seems so right make us lose sight of what God teaches in his word. We can't forget the faithful men and women in the Bible who, who didn't have everything go as their desires dictated. Hebrews 11 is we known as the faith, the chapter of the heroes of faith in the Bible. And there's, there's verse after verse that talks about these people and the incredible faith they had and how God blessed them. It it kind of wraps up in verse 33. Their faith helped them conquer kingdoms, and because they did right, God made promises to them. They closed the jaws of lions and put out raging fires and escaped from the swords of their enemies. Although they were weak, they were given the strength and power to chase foreign armies away. And some women even received their loved ones back from death. Isn't that awesome? Yes. And then right in the middle of verse 35, there's this abrupt shift. Listen to what it says. Many of these people were tortured, but they refused to be released. They were sure they would get a better reward when the dead are raised to life. Others were made fun of and beaten with whips, and some were chained in jail. Still others were stoned to death and sawed in two or killed with swords. Some had nothing but sheepskins or goatskins to wear. They were poor, mistreated, and tortured. The world didn't deserve these good people who had to wander in deserts and on mountains and had to live in caves and holes in the ground. A few, All of them pleased God because of their faith. But they still died without being given what had been promised. Brothers and sisters, that's faith. Faith that sustains is not faith that always gets all the answers that we ask God for. God knows what's necessary to bring people to Himself and when it's necessary and how to do it. And I don't. And you don't either. I had a conversation just this week with someone was sharing with me how they had prayed so earnestly for a particular outcome in a very, very difficult, troubling situation. But they just prayed and prayed, and it seemed like nothing was ever going to happen. And they said, and finally, I realized maybe what I'm praying for is something God knows isn't best. That's what these three guys in Daniel 3 understood. That's what we need to understand in order to have a faith that sustains us and glorifies our great God. We don't always have the answers as to why bad things happen to us. We don't have the answers for cancer or sickness or pain or heartache. But What we do know is God can deliver us. But faith is saying that even if he doesn't, I will still serve Him. May God give us the courage that they have. Let's pray together. Father, it is so hard to swim against the stream in a world that is so determined to gradually pull away every bit of trust in You. And in a world that teaches us to bow before the idols of this age, the idols of self-reliance and security and comfort and image and career and all of those things. Oh, God, keep us from getting sucked in to pursuing artificial success and instead enable us to stand strong trusting you. God, give us the courage that those men had when the heat is on, to face the fire. And may you receive the glory. We pray in Jesus' name, and amen.